this honor to worship you with our voice and our instruments. Thank you, God. We just put ourselves in your care. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to inspire us and help us today. In Jesus' name. Thank you. 
you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and he went to the city of Bethany, where he spent the night. I invite you now to raise your palms, whichever palms that you may have. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. We praise and thank you, O God, for the great acts of love by which you have redeemed us through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. On this day he entered the holy city of Jerusalem in triumph and was acclaimed Son of David and King of Kings by those who scattered their garments and branches of palm upon his path. We ask that you bless these branches and those who bear them, and bless the palms of our people, and grant that we may ever hail him as our Lord and King, and follow him with perfect confidence through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everything I have for you, but now I'm gone. Everyone will turn to you. Turn to you. 
And so, Father, we just want to exalt you at this time. We want to praise you. We want to give glory to you because you are all that there is for us in life. And after this life is done, we will spend eternity with you. What a blessed assurance you have given us. And so, Father, accept our praise and our thankfulness this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. the Old Testament we hear the words of the prophet Isaiah reading from the 50th chapter beginning at verse 4 the sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary he wakens me morning by morning wakens my ear to listen like one being taught the sovereign Lord has opened my ears and I have not been rebellious I have not drawn back. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting, because the sovereign Lord helps me. I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who is it who will condemn me? The New Testament reading comes from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The Holy Gospel is according to St. Matthew, the 27th chapter, beginning at verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he has was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply. 
not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it upon his head. They put a staff in his right hand and they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said, and they spit on him and took the staff and struck him in the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes on him and they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now, if he wants him, 
For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. <clears throat> From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died had been raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquakes and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Let us pray. Gracious and Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. And we now ask that you would open our eyes for us to see you. Unlock our ears for us to hear you. Awaken our hearts. Stir your spirit within us that we may know you and your will for us. In Jesus' name we pray. representation of an out-and-out -out disregard for the Eighth Commandment than the trial of Jesus of Nazareth. Even before the Jewish ruling council brings Jesus before the Roman governor in order to have Jesus executed, the commandment is being violated over and over again. The previous chapter, which we did not read, places Jesus before the Sanhedrin. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Notice how the high priest then leans into the second commandment when he's demanding an answer from Jesus. The high priest said to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, 
the Son of God. Now, convinced of the court's incompetence, Jesus confirms the oath and gives the Sanhedrin a charge that will stick, agreeing with the high priest charge that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is the same title used by Satan during the three temptations in the wilderness. The man possessed by a legion of demons. Simon Peter's confession, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And the centurion and those guarding Jesus under the cross who exclaims after Jesus has died, surely he was the son of God. The title, Son of God, depicts a relational connection to a deity rather than the identity of the second person of the Trinity, who is God the Son. In Jesus' case, no, they're interchangeable. While Jesus would not formally be recognized as the incarnate God the Son until the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity in the third century. But the point of contention in Jesus' trial has everything to do with the Jewish religious title Messiah, or Christ in Greek. The religious title Messiah, which is translated as the anointed one of God, is a king or a high priest. Echoing Simon Peter's confession received through direct revelation but this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood begins Jesus, but by my Father in heaven. But Caiaphas, who is the high priest, knows that the Roman governor won't concern himself with a religious issue like blasphemy. And so he presents Jesus as a radical zealot who is proclaiming himself to be a king, a charge which Pilate will undoubtedly take seriously, which is why the first question the governor asked Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? The obvious neglect of the Eighth Commandment continues even through the interrogation by the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? False accusations are still being spoken. <clears throat> when Pilate makes a gracious gesture to release Jesus or a known criminal, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. When we consider the meaning of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor we can clearly see how this has been violated by bringing forth false witnesses that present false evidence and lies. In our modern times, we might understand this commandment as to mean gossip or lies or things that are fabricated about or circulated by us or by another person about other people. We often forget that the emphasis of the second half of the Decalogue has more to do with how we treat our neighbors. So in order to understand how the Eighth Commandment works itself out in our lives, we need to begin the same way as we have with all the other commandments. First of all, the purpose of the law is to expose my sin 
and to drive me towards the gospel. As before, we must first begin with the author of those laws. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Luther writes in the small catechism, and I quote, We are to fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray or slander them, or destroy their reputation. Instead, we are to come to their defense, speak well of them, and interpret everything they do in the best possible light. End of quote. Earlier in the Gospel, Jesus moves our understanding of the written requirements of the fifth and sixth commandments, which are also part of the second half of the Decalogue, from the realm of the physical interactions with our neighbors to the hidden thoughts of the mind. So let's turn our attention to James for a moment, who writes, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's image. This aspect of the command concerns all people, and it falls under the category of the sins of the tongue. The tongue is also a fire, writes James, a world of evil amongst all the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Another aspect of the Eighth Commandment, which causes many Christians to stumble, happens when we find ourselves judging others. This often happens in my self-righteousness when I see a neighbor committing a sin and I stand in judgment of them. In fact, the Bible is quite clear that nobody has the right to judge or reprove a neighbor publicly, even when you have seen the sin committed. Judgment belongs to the Lord, who is authorized to judge. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Martin Luther explains in the large catechism that having, quote, knowledge of sin doesn't entail the right to judge it or to make it public, end of quote. Because when we do this, we cause our neighbor disgrace and harm rather than speaking well of them, coming to their defense and interpreting everything they do in the best possible light. Simply speaking, God forbids speaking evil even when you know that the person is guilty. The three petitions, often subtitled Dealing with Sin in the Church, which I know many of you are thinking about at this point, found in Matthew 18, is often misinterpreted as a process to shame or to excommunicate a person or specifically an unrepentant sinner from the fellowship of the church. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Notice three very important points in this sentence. It's between two Christians. It's private. And the goal is repentance of the sinner so that they can return to the fellowship of the church. 
The next two petitions are again directed at restoration and reconciliation. Now, ultimately, the keys of the kingdom of heaven to forgive or to not forgive are held by the church of Christ on earth. For the truly unrepentant person, the goal should always be to restore, to reform the guilty with love and with the gospel, to get people back on the right track in the fellowship. But often, an unrepentant soul will continue moving in the direction that they're going, and slowly and surely they will move further and further away from the Christian fellowship and from the gospel and from the free gift of salvation, effectively condemning themselves to the fires of hell. Sadly, forgiveness and reconciliation wasn't the goal of the Jewish ruling council. Their goal was plain, to get rid of Jesus. The chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, violating the fifth commandment. Once Jesus has been arrested, the gospel recounting is filled with violations of the eighth commandment, including this questionable, shadowy evening meeting of the council, which is not allowed to happen except in daylight hours. The passion of our Lord can be said to even have begun with the bribery of Judas Iscariot, which Moses describes in detail after the Ten Commandments, saying, do not follow the crowd in wrongdoing. And a bit further on, have nothing to do with false charge. And a bit further on, do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the innocent. Moses was pretty bright, you know. He listened really well to God. So we need to remember that when we read the gospel according to Matthew, that what we are hearing is something that is predominantly written to Jewish Christians, as Matthew sometimes adds some inside information from his own personal experiences with the Jewish leadership before and after Jesus' death and resurrection. For example, Matthew is the only account where the Roman guards are bribed to say that Jesus' disciples came during the night and stole him away while they were sleeping. It meant death to a Roman soldier to fall asleep on duty. Even today, now atheists continue to put forward three different challenges against Jesus' resurrection. And one of those challenges proclaims that the Romans crucified the wrong man. And Matthew almost appears to know about this possibility by giving his readers the full Jewish identity of the criminal presented to the Jews by the Roman governor. When the crowds had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? First of all, Jesus is the Greek translation of the Aramaic name Joshua, which is a very common name in Israel. Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus traced all the way back to Abraham the father of their nation, 
And so in Jewish society, sons are identified by their relationship to their father. And so Joseph bar Jacob identifies Jesus' stepfather, Joseph, by connecting him to his birth father, Jacob, which we translate into English as Joseph, son of Jacob. Now, since Jesus has no paternal biological human father, he is literally Yehoshua bar Elohim, Jesus, son of God. Whereas Pilate avoids using any hereditary designation because he wants to irritate the high priest for bringing Jesus to him in the first place. But then Pilate does something strange, introducing a common criminal by his full hereditary name, asking the crowds to choose between Jesus called Messiah and Jesus bar Abbas. Now remembering, Jesus is called Son of God by Caiaphas during the Sanhedrin's questionable trial. The criminal's name, Jesus bar Abba, literally translates to Yehoshua, Son of the Father. Matthew makes it clear that there is no mistake in identity as the Jews have selected to crucify Jesus, who is called Christ, as they further answer, his blood is on us and our children. Jesus bar Abba is released while Pilate has Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Now notice how this relates so well to modernity. Pilate gives the crowd what they want rather than risking their displeasure. Pilate recognized that he's putting an innocent, an innocent man to death by washing his hands and claiming his innocence in this matter and then blaming the crowd. Barabbas is identified as a revolutionary leader while Jesus is accused and trialed for the same charge. The people choose the sinful ways of a criminal while seeking to crucify their true Lord. Jesus came into the world to fulfill the law and the commandments, and he is sentenced to death by a mockery of those same commandments. Like a lamb that is led to the soul of slaughter, and like sheep that before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice, he was taken away. Where is the hope in this travesty? Speaking to his fellow Israelites, Simon Peter, now directed by God the Holy Spirit, describes Jesus of Nazareth as having been handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead. Everything that took place was preordained by God from the beginning of time. Peter assures his listeners that they have acted out of ignorance, saying, Be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It is your sin, my sin, 
Every single physical and mental offense that we commit against God's law and commandments, which is crucified with the Lord of life. You and I are sinners, and we are responsible, as responsible as those in the crowd who on that day called out, crucified him. And then from the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. To him be all glory, now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to continue with the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Lord God. 
Father, I especially want to pray against this virus now that is that is causing such great harm to our world, affecting most of the countries of our world, affecting those who have been trained to give care to those who are struggling in sickness, bringing them to the point of exhaustion. And so we especially want to raise those people, Father, to stay. Our doctors, our nurses, all the caregivers, our family who, who are struggling with not knowing what is happening with older members or with members who are in lockdown, being trying to recover from this illness. We could pray for hours simply on what is happening with this virus at this time. But we pray for it to stop, Father. Yes. We pray for you to stop it in its tracks now. That the infections from this, this virus would come to a halt. 
because it is not affecting just people's lives and our business and our economy, but it's also affecting your church. And the further people are away from the church and from faith, sometimes the further they walk away from you. But I know, Father, because I've been there. And so, Father, we pray for, for those who struggle in the faith, especially these days. Those who struggle without knowing for sure why these things are happening. But your word is clear. We live in a fallen world. And these are parts of the fallen world which we have to contend with every single day of our lives. Be it either sickness, be it accidents, be it death. So we pray also for our first responders who often are called into situations not knowing for sure what they will encounter. We pray for our educators as they are now trying to find ways to reach out to the children to continue the work that they get great joy from doing, of being able to teach the young minds of our world. But we also pray, Father, that they would be able to teach about the way that you take care of us in this time, even amongst the teaching of the sciences and the math. We pray for every member of our church community, especially those who grieve for Pat and her family, for the many who grieve today, not being able to bring closure to the death of family because of the restrictions that we are facing and we pray for our young people, the many who just want to ignore the restrictions and do whatever they want anyway. We pray that you would open their hearts and minds to see that certain things are useful in preventing things from getting worse. And most of all, Father, we pray for these missionaries. We pray for them to be able to continue to spread your word, to spread the gospel message to those who have never heard it, to those who are struggling with it, and especially in those countries which are closed, where your word is still being taught in the caves, in the hidden places, wherever two or three of your faithful gather even amongst the danger of life and death. And gracious Father, we pray for us. We try as best to walk in your path, Father, to walk in your ways as you shower us with grace and love every moment of our lives. And so we bring to you all these concerns, the concerns of health for Mary's brother, for family, for friends, and for all those whom we name before you at this time, either in the silence of this time or aloud. Gracious Father, 
touch the lives of all who struggle with whatever physical, mental, whatever it is that they're struggling with, and especially those in our church whom we have on our prayer list, for Bill Ann Horn, for Kira, for Art and Sapka, for Rona and Suzanne, for Joyce and Brian, Violet and Gert, for Lloyd and Candy and Dory, for Judy, for Margaret, for Robbie, for Braden, Charlotte, Elnor, Lily, Selma, Ori, Maud, Millie, Georgina. And we will continue to pray and to connect with each other in the time ahead so that we can continue to pray for each other no matter where we are. And always being mindful, Father, we come together in your name. We pray the prayer that you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power and the glory, Lord, forever and ever. Amen. Now, you know, I'll get the transition song for a short. Thank you. 
Thanks be to God. 